Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Thomas Crone, Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the new book, Getting Russia Right. Uh, Tom, welcome to Bookstack. Great to be with you today. And congratulations on the new book. And, and rather admirably, you begin it uh, with a mea culpa of one kind that most Russia experts, you say, including yourself, got Russia wrong when it came to the invasion of Ukraine. That's absolutely correct. It's one of the things I don't like to talk about, but one has to be honest, uh, experts get things wrong and will only learn if we were prepared to admit that. And why do you think that so many experts did get it wrong in that moment? Was it about the moment or was it something more systemic, do you think? Well, for me, uh, at least I think it's that I misread Putin and failed to understand the extent to which he had changed in his basic approach to foreign policy over the past over the past several years. Uh, when Putin first came to power uh, back uh, in the early 2000s, uh, he was very much in the tradition of uh, Russian strategic thinking, very pragmatic in his approach, um, operated on the basis of what we would call realpolitik, um, wasn't a person who took wild risks. I think in the past several years, what we've seen, and again, this is in retrospect, looking back at this, trying to understand why I missed what happened in February of, of last year, is he moved away from that pragmatic approach uh, to Russian foreign policy uh, to something that I would call more a messianic approach. Um, began to think of himself in a different way as one of these great czars who gathers Russian territory uh, of Russia himself uh, as a leader of some global coalition uh, against the West, and therefore was out of touch with the reality of the situation uh, in and around Ukraine. Obviously, he grossly underestimated uh, the resistance that the Ukrainians would put up. He grossly underestimated the ability of the West to unite against Russia's aggression. And he exaggerated the power of the Russian military. Those things I wouldn't have expected of, uh, of Putin, say, 10 years ago, but that clearly influenced uh, his thinking in the run-up to the uh, invasion of Ukraine. And it is one of the it's one of the fascinating elements of this book. Uh, you, as practitioner and as historian, uh, you've been studying Russia for most of your life. You worked on Russia uh, in government, in the embassy in Moscow, in the departments of state and defence. Uh, you were the senior director for Russia on the National Security Council staff during the uh, George W. Bush administration. What does that bring to your analysis now that you're looking back on this post-Cold War period uh, as a historian? Well, there's, again, there's a wealth of experience uh, that, that one has to account for. The experience helps you understand uh, how Russians think, how they look at the world. Um, but again, you know that along the way, you misread Russia. Uh, the policy, mildly put, didn't turn out exactly the way we had hoped it would. Uh, at the end of, end of the Cold War. So as an historian, you're trying to look uh, to understand why you miss those things, but there's something deeper uh, about the relationship uh, between Russia and the United States, something deeper about the political processes uh, in Russia that we need to be aware of now as we go forward in trying to manage a relationship with a country that's going to be a rival of the United States well into the future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say there that things did turn out uh, exactly as we would have wanted. In fact, the, the conclusion really of the book is that there were far more shortcomings than successes uh, in the post-Cold War world, you say? 
Yeah, but that uh, is where I came out on, on this. I mean, I think we misread Russia and the possibilities with Russia uh, in the years after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think what we saw in retrospect in Russia in 1991 was a democratic revolution uh, as much as it was a power struggle uh, that replaced one element of the Soviet nomenclature, the Soviet ruling elite, uh, with another element of the Soviet ruling elite, which had rebranded itself as the Russian political elite at that point, but shared fundamental values about how the Russian political system should operate uh, and what Russia's goals were on the global stage. So that, I think, is a fundamental mistake that we made at the very beginning and uh, led to a lot of missteps in a policy going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, surprised me, actually, early on, that you say that nothing would really have been different if senior policymakers had acted differently. Is that because you think that this was a, a systemic problem uh, or are you just uh, sparing the blushes of your former bosses? No, nah, well, look, I mean, you know, the conclusion that I came to, uh, and, and quite frankly, this was contrary to what I thought at that time, I thought there was a possibility of building an enduring strategic partnership, that there was enough commonality in the interest between the two countries uh, that this would endure over time. As I began to look further back uh, into the history of Russia, the history of our relations, you know, I came to the conclusion uh, that we have fundamentally been rivals from the moment the United States emerged as a major power on the global scene at the very end of the 19th century. We have very, very different worldviews that are grounded in our history, our historical experience, our political tradition. Uh, we have very different strategic imperatives. We think about our security in different ways. Uh, and this leads to an incompatibility uh, between Russia and the United States uh, that uh, prevents or precludes close partnership, enduring partnership. It doesn't mean that we have to be adversaries as we are today. Uh, there's a way of being constructive competitors, uh, but that really is the most that we can aspire to is a rivalry, uh, a competition that is kept within bounds, uh, that doesn't run the risk of a direct military confrontation between our two countries uh, and the threat of a nuclear catastrophe that that type of confrontation entails. And so, I mean, that implies that uh, this will continue over generations, a kind of updated version of the 19th century great game, if you like. Um, how, but how important is Vladimir Putin in all of this? So often when we talk about the relationship with Russia, um, we, we put it in this very personal way. And I suppose as a follow-up to that, I mean, your former boss, uh, President Bush, uh, said that he'd looked into the uh, into the eyes of, uh, of of Vladimir Putin and seen a soul. Uh, you must have seen him close up as well. Um, what did you see and how has that changed over time? I mean, I think people don't give President Bush enough, uh, enough credit. They remember the, um, the phrase, you looked into Putin's eyes and got a sense of his soul. They forget what he said next. And that was uh, that he understood that this would be a, uh, a man who would defend Russia's national interests. Now, President Bush understood Russia's national interests in a way that was somewhat different from uh, the way Putin did. But what you saw, particularly in the first uh, two uh, terms of Putin's presidency, is a man who defended Russia's national interests. It's a very pragmatic real politique. That has changed more recently, as we've discussed, this messianic view uh, that leads to overstretch, uh, delusions of grandeur that I don't think work to Russia's uh, interests. 
over the long term, and indeed not in the short term uh, either. To answer the question about Putin, clearly Putin plays an important role right now. Uh, any Russian leader uh, would have been concerned about what was happening in Ukraine, given the role that that territory has played uh, in Russian history, given the fact that uh, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, without the resources of Ukraine, particularly the territory that's being fought over today, Russia wouldn't have been a great power. Um, the Donbass was the center of industrial activity uh, in the Russian empire and well into the 20th century. That region was a critical element of the Soviet military and industrial complex. So uh, any Russian ruler would have been concerned about Ukraine moving away from Russia into the Western orbit. Uh, but not every Russian uh, leader would have chosen war as the way of rectifying uh, that concern. That goes into Putin's personality, the way he thinks about things. I think other Russian leaders uh, would have been prepared to engage in diplomacy uh, for some time longer. It may have been coercive diplomacy, uh, but wouldn't have run the risk of a military operation on the scale uh, that Putin has launched uh, over the past 20 months. And I mean, that that sense of history uh, kind of sits over this whole question. And, and actually, at one point, you say that, you know, policymakers need to simplify things when they're thinking about these. So let's do that. I mean, Russia uh, had been invaded during the Napoleonic Wars. It was invaded during the First World War. It was invaded during the Second World War. It put its boundaries, its borders uh, in uh, Germany uh, during the Cold War period. Uh, what made us think, do you imagine, that the expansion of NATO and, and that alliance, that military alliance, would not have been perceived uh, as a threat by Russia? I'm not sure we didn't believe uh, that Russia would not see this as a threat. Uh, we were aware of that concern. We thought that Russia, uh, one, would not be in a position to object, uh, object vehemently because of the decline in Russian power. It was certainly true of the 19th. Uh, 90s, less so in the 2000s, as Russia began uh, to recover. And second, we thought we could sell this to the Russians uh, as a policy that would redound to Russia's advantage, uh, that it would reduce the level of threat to Russia itself. Um, we never convinced the Russians of that. And I think that is because uh, we did not understand the extent to which Russia's sense of itself as a great power revolved around Russia's ability to influence development on the European continent. Think about this. How, when did Russia demonstrate its prowess as a great power over the past three centuries? It's on the great European battlefield. It's at the grand European diplomatic conferences. And what NATO expansion did, EU expansion did, is push Russia to the margins of Europe and basically said, you no longer have a role to play inside uh, Europe. And that was problematic from the Kremlin standpoint. Yeah, we had um, Frank Costagliano on the biographer of George Kennan uh, not long ago. And, and he pointed out that Kennan made exactly this point uh, in the immediate post-Cold War period, saying uh, in many ways that, that if we push Russia back in the way that you've described, uh, we could expect trouble in the future. Right. And that's, and that's exactly what we, uh, what we had. Now, there were other options. Uh, you might remember that in the early 1990s, we put in place a program that was called Partnership for Peace uh, that gave all of the countries of the former Soviet bloc some access, um, some connection uh, with NATO, a promise of a possible partnership, but well into the future. 
Uh, and that was something uh, when first presented to uh, to the Russians and to, uh, the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, at that time, was met with some uh, degree of satisfaction, promise that this was, uh, this sounded uh, a reasonable way to go. That program, uh, as a dominant element of American foreign policy, as far as Europe was concerned, passed away very, very rapidly. Within a year, year and a half of announcing or launching that program, we were moving towards NATO expansion. Uh, that, I think, created, as we saw problems with Russia uh, over the long term, a continuation of partnership for peace may have provided a, a longer period uh, in which Russia could adjust to the new geopolitical realities but in ways that would, would have been less harmful to American interests uh, and still had recognized the sovereignty and independence uh, of the countries of the former Soviet bloc and the former Soviet Union. It was very striking to me, actually, you say that, uh, that in this book you're painting with very broad brushstrokes. But we had uh, Mary Sorotti on the show as well and uh, to talk about her book, Not One Inch, which is a very detailed uh, view of that post-Cold War environment. And both of you come to very similar conclusions from the different approaches that you've taken, namely the post-Cold War policymakers missed a golden opportunity here with Russia. That's right. Now, uh, let me say that, you know, Sorotti has gone into great detail and it's very, very convincing. I haven't gone into nearly as much detail. But you make that point at the beginning. It's a different kind of book coming from a different kind of experience. What I found so interesting was that from your two different positions, you as a former policymaker, her as an, an academic historian, you broadly come to the same conclusions about this missed opportunity. Absolutely. But I think that largely because our sense of Russian history, our sense of Russia uh, overlap. She provides the detail. Uh, you know, as I say in the book, as a practitioner, you can't deal with all that detail. You've got to simplify in, in order to be able to act. But I, I think we both have a sense of Russian history, uh, how Russians think about their security, uh, and therefore came to very much the same conclusions as to what was possible uh, in the 1990s and what may have led to a more favorable outcome from the standpoint of American national interest. When we think back to the to the earlier period, to the Cold War period, and and even the Second World War with Stalin, th there's a pragmatism uh, about Soviet foreign policy. Do you think that that tradition uh, is still there now? And does that open some kind of door uh, in the future for the kind of relationship that you were talking about at the beginning of the interview? Well, you know, let me say, in the 1990s. We also lost an element of pragmatism in our foreign policy. And again, it's understandable in retrospect. There was a great deal of exuberance at the end of the uh, Cold War. Um, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama uh, carried a lot of weight uh, in, inside, the, inside the beltway at the highest levels of government. We had come through uh, a very difficult 20th century. Uh, we had crushed fascism during the Second World War. Uh, it's hard to read the... Uh, end of the Cold War is anything other than a vindication of liberal democracy against uh, against totalitarian communism. Uh, and so the idea that countries to survive and thrive into the 21st century had to move in that direction has some basis in reality. Uh, but we took that uh, as a fundamental uh, aspect, as a given, and moved away from what I think was our more pragmatic a foreign policy 
uh, during the, the Cold War to one that was more based on, on, on ideological ambitions. And that, uh, I think, did not serve us well uh, as we tried to develop a relationship with Russia in the 1990s. And indeed, it didn't serve us well as we tried to develop a relationship with China uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s as well. And that is part of the reason uh, we're back into an era of great power competition uh, in which there are heightened geopolitical stakes. And it's clear that we also have radically different uh, views of how the world should operate now and into the future. Yeah, because the the way that you present Russian uh, foreign policy, I almost said Soviet foreign policy there, is that this is it seems a, a completely new revolutionary strategic era uh, for Russia as a global power. It's a very different era for, for Russia. Uh, and part of it is that it has become global, right? I mean, for most of Russian history, although we've had expansion uh, across Asia, the focal point of its foreign policy has been Europe. Uh, the center of global geopolitical decision-making, uh, the, the center of strategic thinking for the past two or 300 years, if, if not longer. Uh, the world is shifting in, in, in radical ways, geopolitical landscape, technological landscape, the fusion of power uh, has created problems for Russia that it has engaged with in, in the past, as it is creating problems for us um, that are unfamiliar as far as our diplomatic tradition is concerned. Russia uh, is trying to find or to find its role in the world uh, at, uh, at this point. How does it defend its status as a great power uh, in a global context uh, that is much more complicated in which Russia itself is lagging behind uh, the two leading powers by a wide mark in the United States and China? And they haven't found the answer to that, uh, that equation yet. But, but it still has um, serious cards to play, doesn't it? That it's, it's a great nuclear power, a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, the relationship that it's developing with uh, countries like uh, Iran and, and North Korea and, and so on. So it, it can't simply be ignored. No, absolutely. Also remember, Aniston, uh, the largest natural endowment, research endowment in the world, that's going to be important going forward. And its geographic location uh, means that it can project power, it can project pathologies in almost, almost all the, the parts of the world that are strategically important for the United States, Europe, the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, the Arctic. Uh, the only uh, region that is off limits uh, to a certain extent is North America. And, you know, in, in, in thinking about um, the, the way in which the United States has responded, a, a lot of our... Um, action has been focused on finance, basically uh, restricting the amount of money that the Kremlin has, fewer profits from oil and so on. Uh, what do you make of that as an approach? And what kind of pressure can be put on countries like India, for example, uh, which is still the, the biggest buyer of Russian oil today? Well, this is a, as you know, it's a controversial issue. Uh, I think we radically exaggerated the, the impact of sanctions. Uh, on Russia. Uh, you know, there are two sorts that we've had. We've had the personal sanctions and we've had the, the sectoral sanctions. The personal sanctions were levied, I think, based on a gross misunderstanding of how the Russian political system operated. We thought if we denied these so-called oligarchs, these rich Russian billionaires, access uh, to their assets abroad, that somehow they would march into the Kremlin until he had to change his conduct. 
in order to save their, their livelihood. That's not the way the system in Russia works. These oligarchs are dependent on Putin for their livelihood. Uh, and therefore, what we saw, in fact, uh, was a repatriation of the resources the oligarchs could repatriate that went to further fuel Russia's uh, war capacity. So I think that was fundamentally mistaken. The sectoral sanctions um, were probably better thought out. But the problem you have here, as you've indicated, is not universal, that the Russians can find many ways of circumventing these sanctions than they have as far, far as the export of oil and gas are concerned. Uh, it's also clear that countries like India and China were not prepared uh, to levy these sanctions and try to isolate Russia the way the United States has. And therefore, instead of seeing a rapid uh, economic decline in Russia, we've seen Russia more or less hold its own. Um, the economy will likely grow this year. Uh, Putin has put Russia on a war footing. And that means that they are capable of producing military equipment, ammunition in particular, to continue this conflict in Ukraine. All of this contrary to what we'd hope would happen when we levied these sanctions beginning in February, March of 2022. We're going to have a very difficult time uh, persuading India to line up behind us as far as sanctions are concerned. They've had a long-standing traditional positive relationship with Russia. Their strategic concern uh, is China, first, first of all, and they see Russia uh, as something of a potential counterbalance uh, against China over the, uh, over the long term. And so while the Indians want to draw closer to the United States, and they have, particularly you see the way we operate within the Quad, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States at this point, um, the closer strategic coordination we have, but they will want to maintain uh, a working relationship with Russia. Uh, and from the standpoint of American national interest, and thinking about our long-term uh, strategic challenge from China, we are going to want to uh, respect India's strategic choices uh, to the extent that they do not run diametrically opposed to what we want to accomplish uh, on the global stage. We really are back to the 19th century great game, aren't we? Um, I mean, we're a year away from a, a presidential election. Um, what, what do you make of the current Biden administration policy on Russia and how might it change in a potential Trump administration um, based on what we saw in the, in the previous uh, Trump administration? You know, my assessment is that the Biden administration uh, has done okay as far as Russia is concerned. You know, they have pushed back where they needed. They've rallied the West against uh, Ukraine. We can argue uh, over whether the, the administration has provided the type of weaponry uh, the Ukrainians need in sufficient quantities rapidly enough. But they have uh, basically come in behind the Ukrainians, given them the wherewithal to at least maintain themselves on the battlefield. Uh, you know, whether this will produce a, a military breakthrough is another question at this point. Where I think the administration uh, has failed somewhat uh, is on the diplomatic side. Now, despite the, uh, the nature of the conflict at this point, despite our obvious distrust of Russia, uh, I do think it's, it's important that we have some sort of channels of communication uh, with, the, with the Kremlin. They've only to understand how they, how they look at the problem, uh, what their motivations are, uh, what their ambitions are, so that we can factor that into our own policymaking. And we also need to have a channel 
in which we can effectively convey what our interests are, what we're prepared to do, uh, and how uh, we see the relationship going forward. Uh, all of this, I think, would lead to a, a more effective policy and in the short term would lead to a, uh, a nearer term resolution of the conflict in Ukraine. So what, what grade would I give the, um, the Biden administration? Probably a B, B plus at this point. Um, after all, we're in the era of great inflation, right? You know, I think the concern uh, with Trump is that uh, what we'll see is uh, the four years of his administration uh, on steroids. You know, the actual policy towards Russia uh, was not as bad as the rhetoric, but the rhetoric can be damaging uh, in current circumstances. I think the president's personal disdain for Europe is problematic. Uh, in the current uh, current environment, given that we need a united Europe in order to manage our problem uh, with Russia, we're going to need allies in East Asia uh, to manage China, but also to manage our, our problem to Russia to a certain extent. The Kremlin will almost certainly try to exploit uh, the vulnerabilities of a, of a Trump administration. You know, that said, uh, the Russians have, are operating on, will, will not be operating under any uh, illusions as they were uh, uh, in the first term, that uh, they can manipulate Trump in order to sort of come to agree to Russian positions on the global stage. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the Kremlin realizes that uh, Trump would be as unpredictable in a second term, probably even more so than he was in the first term. And that is problematic from the standpoint of Russia's own foreign policy over the next four, four to eight years. And you say that in the end, the United States will have to engage in direct negotiations with Russia to end this conflict. You know, absolutely, because this conflict is not simply about Ukraine. It's also about broader questions uh, of European security. Uh, and the only two countries that really can impact in a significant way on European security are the United States and Russia. This has been true since the uh, end of the Second World War. You know, what I underscore here uh, this is not the United States uh, negotiating with Russia over the heads uh, of Ukraine. It's not imposing a solution uh, on Ukraine. Ukraine obviously has to be an integral element of this. It has to be integrated uh, into the diplomacy. Uh, but that does not preclude a direct U.S.-Russia channel where we talk about Ukrainian issues uh, as well as broader questions uh, of European security. Uh, that requires the United States to be in close consultation with their uh, Ukrainian partners, making sure that they understand uh, the messages that, we're, uh, that we are conveying. And it's also true of our European allies. But without that type of direct conversation, I think it's very difficult uh, to see a, a satisfactory resolution uh, of, of this crisis anytime in the near future and on, uh, and on conditions that are favorable, uh, not only to the United States, but to Ukraine and Europe uh, and our at least acceptable to the Russian side. So the book is Getting Russia Right. It's written by my guest, Thomas Graham, and published by Polity. Uh, but for now, Tom, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.